0: Today is the third week in our series on the Good Samaritan. We looked the first week at the parable and what it it meant in those days to be a Good Samaritan. Last week we looked at how could we be Good Samaritans to those who are sick. Today we're going to look at what does it mean to, in the world of justice, to be a Good Samaritan in today's world. Uh, Part four, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be a Good Samaritan to the poor. and We have a special uh, guest that day. Uh, The first Sunday in February, Reverend Musius Nkoma, who is the pastor of the Chambamwala prayer house in uh, now church in Malawi. He's studying over here at seminary in Southern California. He's going to be with us in worship that day. So we'll talk about that. And then the the final week, we'll look at what does it mean to be a good Samaritan to the earth, to our planet that God has given us this day. But today about justice, uh, we have three voices which come to us from the Old Testament, from the world of the prophets. And they are speaking God's truth uh, to people uh, and through the prophetic voice. So the first one is from uh, the prophet Amos I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon. Ta- take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings of the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Shaku, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will take you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And then from the prophet Isaiah, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And from the book of Ecclesiastes, Again I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. I wonder how many people uh, made a New Year's resolution or a pledge to themselves that they were going to read through the whole Bible, And they started off in Genesis, which is great, because a lot of good stories there. Go into Exodus, good, because they have the Exodus. Uh, And you're going along fine, and then you get to the last third of the Old Testament, the prophets. This, I think, is where people get bogged down in their Bible reading program. Because the prophets are tough. Let's just face it, they're very cranky guys, and when you read them, they're not nice. They call people names. They're very negative. and and, uh, and so it's hard to, to wade through them in some way. But they are so important. The biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann calls them divine irritants. That was their job. God appointed them to be a divine irritant to the ruling power structure of the day. The people who were in charge of Israel. The kings, the people, the whole society sometimes. And so they had to bring the word of God and pronounce it to those who did not want to hear it. None of us really like advice or the admonition to change, even when it's said in kindly terms. But it's when it's said in your face by cranky guys, we like it even less. And so, but that's what what it was. They talked continually about justice. They said that God was not happy with the way that Israel had structured their society because there was this extreme between those that were super wealthy and those that were barely making it starving. And the prophets came and said, God doesn't like this. That there's this extreme, that there are actually people on the bottom, widows and orphans, who don't have enough to eat, who don't have care, who are endangered. And so the the prophets are constantly hammering them about that. Justice, justice, justice. Heard the story of a woman who was a grand dame. She had a big house and she wanted a portrait of herself to hang on the wall in the living room. So she hired this painter to paint a portrait of her. And when he was done, he unveiled it. And she was horrified. She hated it. She complained to him. She said, this portrait does not do me justice. And the painter said, ma'am, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Justice gets spelled out in an in-your-face way by Amos. We'd much rather have mercy, but God says we need to have justice. I'm going to read you the passage that we just read in the modern translation called The Message It's a Modern English Translation of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. Here's the the contemporary thing. Same verses that we just read. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness. Rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's all God wants, Amos is saying. Fairness, justice. Micah summarizes all of the prophets in one verse. What does God want from you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The point is that seeking justice makes me interested in what Jesus was interested in. So what did Jesus talk about the most? He talked about a group of people that he called the least of these. He said, whenever you do something to the least of these, you do it to me. So the least of these in that society were the widows and the orphans. That's, they're, they're literally talked about in our scriptures. He mentions, plead for the widows, the orphans. Those were the most vulnerable people in society. And Jesus was tremendously interested in their fate. Let me share with you two scenes about orphans from Africa. The first scene I read about in a book by Rob Bell, who was a minister who was went to Nairobi, Kenya on a mission trip. And when he was there, he was staying with a friend who worked in Nairobi for an NGO. And he said, Rob, I need to show you something. And he took him at nighttime in a taxi to the worst neighborhood of Nairobi. And they got out of the car with great danger and began walking down the road. And in the shadows, he could see these figures. They were girls young women, and he could hear them say a word. They would whisper a word out. And it was the Swahili word for 25 cents, which was what it would cost to spend the night with them. 25 cents, said in Swahili. They they were mostly AIDS orphans. Their parents had died. They worked during the daytime, But they couldn't make enough for their day job, so they became prostitutes at night. The definition of a living hell, to work during the day, be a prostitute at night. And Rob Bell said, when I I heard those voices and saw those figures of those girls in the shadows, he said, my heart literally broke for them. Now, one of the definitions of a Christian is someone whose heart breaks by the same things that break Christ's heart. To allow your heart to be broken by the things that break Jesus's heart is a sense to be a Christian, to have that kind of a heart. Years ago, I worked for a Christian magazine called The Wittenberg Door and my job was to do the interviews and I got to interview a very interesting character named Studs Turkle. He was an author Quite an interesting, he was almost 90 years old by the time I met him. And uh, he, uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, my friends on the right, they're always calling me a bleeding heart liberal. A bleeding heart liberal. So I looked into the etymology of the phrase bleeding heart. You know what it is? You know, you know those old Catholic pictures of Jesus? And he's got a red heart that you can see, and it's broken, and it's bleeding. He said, I don't mind that term anymore now. Because to be a bleeding heart liberal means I've got the heart of Jesus. And I don't consider that an insult. To have our hearts be broken by the things that break Christ's heart is part of what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you a different story, though, of orphans in Africa. A whole different experience than the night in Nairobi. Every one of you who have been on one of our mission trips to Malawi, and I see many of you out there, you've all visited a place called the Ministry of Hope in Empanela, Malawi. The Ministry of Hope is an open-air pavilion where about two or three hundred kids come every day and they get fed lunch, they get taught, they're educated and taught, they play games. And more importantly, it gives a break to the grandparents who are taking care of these kids because the middle generation is dead. It gives the grandparents a chance to go out and to work in their maize fields or probably more importantly, take a nap and, and be ready for the return of the kids in the afternoon. And so this program, when you, when you go there, it's a pro- place that's filled with joy and laughter and, and it's a fabulous thing. And because of these Christian people that are working, putting this on, these kids have a place to go and, and to thrive. What's the cost for one kid one day at this program? 25 cents. 25 cents. God is interested that we continue to be his hands and his feet until the way that it is, is made into the way God wants it to be. The other thing that Jesus was interested in was freedom. He was interested in setting people free. Not having them be slaves to other people, but to experience the fullness of free life. Several years ago, we got involved with a group called the International Justice Mission. And we invited a speaker to come here. And one of our members, Julie Hofer, who's a lawyer, uh, became quite involved in it. It's a group of mostly Christian lawyers who were interested in issues of international justice, dealing with uh, sex trafficking, with bonded slavery, with all the kinds of things that keep people less than free. Julie got involved in that. And she also has been uh, head of our youth club, the fifth and sixth graders. So she got the youth club involved in this international justice mission. I can imagine our fifth and sixth graders sitting around talking about sex trafficking, but somehow they do, and they learn about it and then they get involved. And you know, every time uh, that they have the lemonade sale out there and they accost you at the door and try to get you to come over and buy the lemonade, all of that money goes to the international justice mission. It's their cause that they have adopted they care about it. And it turns out that there's millions of people nowadays that are in slavery, economic slavery. They're really, literally, their time is owned by somebody else. Probably every person in this room has worn an article of clothing made by a slave, made by somebody who is a slave. Millions of them around the world. And so Jesus cares about those people. In fact, you know, Jesus said, the last thing he said before he left, which is, last words are pretty important. He said this, he said to the disciples, go, take my message. He said, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, and go to Samaria and tell them about me. That's an interesting progression. Jerusalem is the equivalent of your hometown. That's where you live. That's where everybody's like you you understand everything. That's the Jerusalem. That was easy. Now Judea, to go there is to go to a mixed place. Some of the things are familiar to you. Some of them are not. It's like somebody from Alabama, a good old boy from Alabama, moves to New York City. And they can technically understand the language, but it sounds a lot different. And um, and they don't have any barbecue joints, but they have these guys in the corner selling hot dogs out of little carts. But they still have McDonald's, like back in Alabama. So some things are the same. Some things are different. That's Judea, or the guy from Iowa that moves to Hate ashbury district of San Francisco and goes, this is a little different here, a little different from what I was used to. But they still have the same bad TV commercials. So there is some the same, too. But when you go beyond Judea and you go to Samaria, oh, that's... Samaria is is, is where the bad guys are. That's where the bad people are, the Samaritans. Remember the first week I said that the idea of a good Samaritan is as much of an oxymoron as the good Al-Qaeda terrorist? It just doesn't work together. Samaria is a bad place. Those people are are not good. They collaborate with the Romans. They defile the temple. They're a different race of people. You don't want to go to Samaria. Samaria. Samaria is where you want to avoid. When, if you have to go there, you better lock your doors. Don't get out of the car. But better yet, just find some other road to go around Samaria rather than through it. So Jesus was interested in asking us to follow him even to Samaria, even to the Samarias of this world. There's parts of Oakland that you can call Samaria in some ways that people try to avoid. I don't want to go through that neighborhood. People that avoid Samaria. But Jesus was interested in turning racism into gracism. On the day of Pentecost, when all of the 14 different ethnic groups were gathered, and the Spirit came down upon them, and they were converted and baptized, and 3,000 people became Christians, people think that the miracle was that everybody heard Peter speaking in his own language. People think that the miracle was the amazing translation of Peter's words into there. But the real miracle of Pentecost was what happened the next day when those 3,000 people in, from ethnic groups that had long hated each other, couldn't stand each other, been fighting for each other, all of a sudden became one body, the Christian church. And they began to cooperate and to work together. That's the true miracle of Pentecost the definition of racism is to speak, act, or think negatively about someone solely based on their color, class, or culture. The definition of grace is God's unmerited favor that is extended to humankind, something we cannot earn or deserve. So the new word, gracism, where you take those two and you put them together, is the positive extension of favor on other, people's reg- on other people regardless of and sometimes because of their color, class, or culture. The new word, gracism. To live like God is to live life as a gracist, someone who extends themselves to other people, even if they don't deserve it, even if they can't repay it, even if they did not earn it. That's breaking down those barriers as part of being a Christian. When I was in Sunday school at the Eastside Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona, we had a song that we would sing often. It was called Jesus Loves the Little Children of the World. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Red or yellow, black or white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And there was even a poster on the wall. Jesus sitting down, and he's surrounded by all of these kids. And the kids are Asian, Hispanic, Black, white, everything. It was, it was a, a visual, visual representation of the song. I remember, though, one day looking around our classroom going, where are the yellow, red, and black kids? Because they weren't there. It was all white in our church. Totally segregated church. And, and, and yet Jesus calls for us to break down these barriers. That's why we have... Sister churches like Cafita and Imani to try to find a way to break down the segregation of Sunday morning. You know, it's the most segregated hour of the week is when people worship. You know, we go to sporting events and we're integrated and other events we're integrated, but separated out in worship. The very opposite of what Jesus called people to do. The barriers of race, class, or gender look at gender. It's such a tragedy that. For 18 of the church's uh, 20 centuries of history, they've ignored the leadership abilities of women. Women have not been able to be ministers for most of the history of the Christian church until relatively recently. And we're still waiting for the Southern Baptists and Catholics to get the idea. Still waiting to break down that barrier of gender in the service of Christ. And so... The, the, we will, the world will not be at peace until we resolve the dissonance caused by racism and sexism. Dissonance. It's a term that also can be found in the field of music. You know, you're playing a piece of music along and, and, and the tension builds up and then it's resolved at the end and, and it feels complete. But if you don't resolve it, then you have this This thing that we call dissonance. Steve, he's going to show you. (laughs) That's not right, is it? That's just not right. Um, There's a story about uh, Sebastian Bach uh, that he was in bed and his wife was playing the harpsichord in the next room, and she stopped playing right in the middle of the piece. She didn't finish it. She didn't resolve it. And as he lay in bed, he kept going over the piece in his mind over and over and over. He had to literally get up out of bed, go to the harpsichord, finish the piece, and then be able to go back to sleep. Sort of like this. better, Steve. Thank you. (laughs) When you think about our world, there's a lot of unresolved dissonance, isn't there? That's a term for what the Bible calls sin. Sin is unresolved dissonance. Things that are not right in the world. Things that God sends prophets to say, I don't want this. We need to work. And justice, by the way, is a lot harder to do than aid. Hardly anybody will object if you give help to a poor person. But when you start talking about justice, you start talking about laws. And pretty soon people start saying that you're meddling in politics and you have no right to be there. When Martin Luther King began to work against the injustice of the Jim Crow South, so many people said, you have no right to be talking about that stuff. That's the the government that has to do with these laws about who can go into this bathroom or that bathroom. You have no right to be doing that. When you start to work for justice, you will cause some controversy sometimes. But that's what King did. That's what Jesus did in his day and time. To save people, to help people, even if it was the Sabbath, he was willing to do that. So in conclusion, back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's two people that passed him on the road past the guy who was beat up. Remember, the Levite and the priest. I don't think of them as bad people. They were just doing what their religion told them to do. Their religion told them that if you touch a dead body, or if you touch someone of another race, you're unclean. And if you become unclean, you can't do your work. So they thought it was better to play it safe, to not touch that person, not to get involved into it. But Jesus does not divine holiness as separation from evil, as much as the absorption and transformation of it, wherein I pay the price instead of asking others to pay the price. Jesus says, go beyond Jerusalem, go to Judea. In fact, go to Samaria, the place that you don't want to go. Because I care about those people too. Those people need me too. Take my message and be an agent of justice in the world. And whenever we do that, we will have the heart of Christ in us as well. Amen.